Okay. Well, this morning, the scripture that we're going to start with is in Mark chapter 2. We're going to be looking at four groups of people in a very small window. But it's one of those things when you, you know, when you, when you're studying the Bible and, you know, you get an opportunity to um, uh, be by yourself and spend time, you know, thinking and, you know, praying about things. It, sometimes the Lord touches your heart in a certain way. And I kind of shared it a little bit with uh, from the pastor's desk this earlier this week, kind of the same idea that we'll be talking about and expound upon it today. But the goal of this is to take this parable and to, or to take this example in Mark chapter 2 and look at it from a 360 degree approach. Because oftentimes when we, in life, you know, depending on what we're experiencing, what we're doing in our life, you know, we don't, we look at the scripture from a certain perspective and a certain angle. So this morning I wanted to look at it from a 360 degree perspective. And in order for us to understand really the application of it and really for later for memory's sake so that we could try and apply it to our lives <laughs> right and in mark chapter 2 and verse 1 we'll start there it says when he had come back to capernaum several days afterward it was heard that he was at home and many were gathered together so there was no longer any room uh, not even near the door and he was speaking the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on, the, on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart, in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up and pick up your pallet and go home. And immediately, and he got up immediately and picked up the pallet and went out, uh, out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, "We have never seen anything like this." So, you, Mark, Mark, it, I chose to go with Mark primarily because, well, we'll get to that when we deal with the four friends. There was a lot of, there was a considerable amount of effort expended by the four friends, and we'll get to that. At a later point. But the point of it is, that's why I chose Mark. So you could see that they actually dug away or they removed tiles so that they could lower their friend down into, down into the presence of Jesus. But before we get to that, I want us to think about, from this example that's given to us, think about who you could be and who we can be and who we have been throughout our life when you look at these four different characters right you have the paralytic you have the skeptics the onlookers and bystanders and the four friends 
And you go, well, well, it's just the breakdown of what we see there. The easy and most applicable and often the most applied way is to look at it from the standpoint that we would all want to be those four friends. But the truth is, you're not always that friend, are you? Why? Well, because that takes effort. And I'm not talking about getting dressed and showing up to church. Although that is effort, and it is a good thing. But we'll get into that when we get to those friends. The first group I want to look at is the skeptics. Who were the skeptics? Who were they? Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? Go with me to Luke chapter 5. Now, this is Luke's rendition of the same account, same example. And, Brother Billy? Yeah, it's okay. Can you? You're you're welcome to come in. Or do you want to? Maybe she wants to talk to somebody. Okay. So the first one, the paralytic, in verse seventeen, he says on on on. It says in verse seventeen, he says one day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him performing the healings. And some men were carrying a man, a man uh, carrying a, on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in his presence. Basically, they're trying to put him in the presence of Jesus, right? And so you look at this, and this you you have the paralytic. The point of it is, is those closest, <laughs> those closest to Jesus at that time were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They had surrounded Jesus because they were trying to listen to what he was saying. Unfortunately, although there were some conversions amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Nicodemus, I think, being one of them, by and large, as you continue to read the chapter, they sat so close to him, and they were okay with listening to the teaching to the point that, guess what? Once he started saying he sins are forgiven, they got a problem with that, don't they? See, a lot of times we like to think that in, in this case, those closest to Jesus in proximity were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, how does that correlate to us? How does that correlate to, to a Pharisee and a Sadducee? When we lose our core values, when we lose the, the core function of who we are as God's people, we think that mere proximity to the Savior is good enough. I'm here, aren't I? Well, yes, it is good to be at church, but it should be your heart's desire to want to be here because the gospel is preached. The gospel is taught. It is an opportunity to gather together as a people to worship and serve God. Mere proximity does not dictate closeness to Christ. Whoa. Hmm. We'll get into what some of those things need to look like in our lives. So in Matthew chapter 15, 
a very familiar scripture for all of us, I think. One that's often used when describing the Pharisees and Sadducees, at least from my standpoint. It's one of the textbook scriptures that you can go to. In, verses one, in verse 1, it says, Then some Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus in Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash the hands when they eat bread. You know, you think about those kind of things. He says, And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil as father and mother is to be put to death. Thank God we don't fall into that same trap as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? No, we would never. We fart. We, fart. <laughs> we fight about what books we sing from, don't we? We fight about what holidays we do and don't celebrate. We fight about the translations that people use. You, you mean to tell me that there's a direct correlation to those trivial things that we make a big deal about? Yeah. Because we think, because of through the removal and the uh, abstaining of things from the flesh, if you will, these certain textbook items that we say, as long as you do these things, you're righteous. You'll keep your head low enough so you won't get hit, <laughs> so to speak, sometimes, right? Ah, wrong answer. There's a difference. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, as we know, were the religious elite of that day. Should have been those the most familiar with the scripture should have seen the coming of their Lord and Savior. But they missed it because their religion got in the way. We've tried to do things at this church and things that we've tried to, you know, that, that have been good for the community and good for us. And I think overall has been good for us. But one of the things, one of the things that has always, that always rears its head that I, that I think about, and it is a direct correlation to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We don't do that. That is your choice. But if God is calling you to do that, that is also your choice to disobey what he's told you to do. And that's not good. Then we become, we, we lose sight of the fact that he says, he says why, do you, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and your mother. And he said, he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. No known record of anybody being put to death for speaking evil of their father or mother, right? I don't know if they were really good at that. But whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have, I, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. In other words, I can use my religion so that I can actually not fulfill what the scripture has called me to do and be. That's the correlation that we all should be looking at from the Pharisee. Every single one of us out there has the potential and the opportunity to be a Pharisee and a Sadducee. Because we think, uh, uh, and, and sometimes it happens to us, right? We think by mere proximity with God, we, that constitutes our righteousness. And we could be the very thing, the very obstacle that is preventing a healing from taking place. What? 
We have to understand that you and I, everyone sitting out there, myself included, are 100% capable of becoming the Pharisee and the Sadducee. If you dismiss them as a group of Jews or a group of Jews that could not understand the coming of Jesus Christ, you miss the boat. You miss the application. Is that part of it? Sure, it's part of it. But how do you internalize that? How do we make that applicable to us? We make it applicable because we can look at that and go, I don't want to be like that. To where the pursuit of my religion overrides the true meaning of what it means to be a Christian, to be Christ-like. Verse 7, it says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts or their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. I understand. I'm fully aware of it. <laughs> that preachers and pastors can be some of the biggest culprits in that. I believe that. Having been a part of those things and having seen those things come up, the reality of it is I don't think you can ever get rid of that 100%. But what you can do is manage it properly. There's going to be an element. There's a physical side of our service to God. No, There's no question about it, right? In other words, you had to brush your hair, brush your teeth, get dressed, put some deodorant on, and all the good stuff that you do to get to church. There's a physical element of all those things. We sing. We do those things. Those are all good things. This is not a removal of, of, of all rule and all authority. That's not what I'm saying. My point of it is, is you cannot let the structure of those things override and make you miss the true blessing. Make you miss experiencing Jesus Christ. Experiencing a miracle. We must all recognize that first group, as I said, are the skeptics. That you can be a skeptic, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, doubting Thomas. Ring a bell? It wasn't until he put his hand, his own hands in the holes in the side of our Savior. A man that walked and talked and, and went with Jesus everywhere he went. He was an early disciple, apostle. We're capable of doing that. We do not want to find ourselves in a position where we honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far away from him. It, the, the control and ability in all of it, we all have it, okay? We all have that ability within all of us. You have the control to, to manage that. It's drawing closer to him, picking up his word, understanding what the scripture teaches us and, and living by it and, and listening to what the spirit imparts upon our hearts and, and, and inspires us to do. These are the things. This is why it's so important for us to have our nose in the book and to pray every day, because that is how God communicates with us. That is also how, while we may have proximity here, we can also main, maintain proximity in our spirit. So that we do not find ourselves in a position to where we are close to God, but our heart is far away from him. Does it make sense? You have the ability to do that. I can't do that for you. 
But we must understand that it is 100%, we are 100% capable of doing that. The second one to look at is the paralytic. If you go back to Mark chapter 2, This one I know that we can relate to. I hopefully, hopefully we can all be honest with ourselves, and because I, I listen, I I've been I've been this paralytic a time a time or two in my life. And in verse three it says, "When they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men." Have you ever been so stricken with sin it has paralyzed you, or incapacitated you? Have we ever been so stricken with worry and fear, and doubt? That it's paralyzed us? Paralyzed us to the point where we needed somebody to carry us in? We lay hands on each other. We pray for each other like we should, like the scripture teaches us to. Why? Because sometimes we're paralyzed by fear. Sometimes we're paralyzed by sin. Sometimes we're so caught up in the sins of this life that we are incapacitated, we are physically unable to, physically and spiritually unable to be put into the presence of Jesus Christ. And we need help. In Matthew chapter 9, Getting into the boat, in verse 1, And Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to stay, get up and walk? Which is, um, But as you know, uh, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up and pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Oftentimes we need to find ourselves in a position that, see, we could be upright and walking and you know, having a grand old time going through the motions, going through life. But you ever feel like you're not making any progress in the Lord? Not making any progress in life? You may be physically upright. You may be physically able and capable of doing everything, but you may be spiritually paralyzed because sin has taken over in your life. We must understand that not only is that possible for us, you must recognize that there may be a time or two in your life that that has been the case. We live in a, in a society, especially in Bakersfield, and I love Bakersfield, born and raised here, but we live in a very blue-collar town, right? We're very, listen, 
I'll tell you, it doesn't matter the industry that you, that you go to work in. One thing you don't do in Bakersfield, California is be lazy. It, you get found out real quick. They may do that in other cities, but you don't do that here. It, it does not go well, at least in the industrial settings that I've been in. It does not go well. You'll get run off jobs real quick. And so it's important for us to understand that it's good to have good work ethic. But, you know, we've got this term, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? We've all heard that. Suck it up. It's time to, it's time to go, right? Well, okay, to a degree, yeah, those are all true statements. However, there may come a time in all of our lives where, guess what? We don't have enough power. We don't... Things have crept up in our life and that Satan has attacked us or we have sinned so much in our life that we're paralyzed. We need somebody to carry us. We need somebody there to help us. We're paralyzed. We're incapacitated with sin and worry. It happens. It's capable. We need to be brought into the presence of the Savior. Listen, the, the point of it is you look at you look at what takes place there with with the paralytic is look, his it, the, the healing is 100 percent possible. Sometimes we need someone to carry us there. First, we need to realize that we are paralyzed. Oh, man, I'm not making anywhere in my life. I'm not. God's not blessing me. He's not taking care of me. He's not doing these things. Have you been applying yourself? Have you sought help from others? An interesting dynamic I've found. I have more people that come to me for help outside of the church than inside. That's a true statement. It's been that way since I've been the pastor here. That's not everybody. But it's a lot. Why? Because you don't want me to know. It's truth. You don't want me to know. Even though I know most of the time already. Very well aware. Because God gives me the insight. I believe. Not just me. Just me as an individual. It's the position. Number three, the third group, onlookers and bystanders. Say what? Well, if you go over and read Mark chapter 2, that room, that house was filled, wasn't it? Those in the most immediate place there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then you had the bystanders and the onlookers. People of action blow right past them for information purposes. We must understand that we can be, even as God's people, I put my faith in the Lord. Yes, 
This doesn't creep. Listen, I would like to clarify some things. Being paralytic, being the bystander, being the onlooker, none of these things creep up on Well, they do creep up on us. There's always a method and a reason for which and how we find ourselves in those positions. But it's not something that's like sneaking and lurking in the shadows and goes, Aha, gotcha! No, it's usually over time how that, how that takes place. The, by, the bystander and the onlooker is somebody that is merely okay with being entertained and playing the image of a Christian. They just came to hear what was said. That's not necessarily a bad thing. We got, I'm going to look at two different bystanders that you have here that you can look at. Because there's actually, if you do a little quick search of it, it's really kind of an interesting thing. You, you look up onlooker or bystander in the Bible, you're like, oh, that's interesting. It's just, I would recommend if you wanted to do that. And the first one is in Matthew chapter 26. Now, the term is actually not used here, but it is, they are bystanders, and it is people that you can see. Actually, you can go to another gospel, you can read it. But it says, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came and said to him, you, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you. Verse 69, Matthew chapter 26. Sitting outside in the courtyard, a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know who you're talking about. When he had gone out to the, uh, out of the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who uh, were there, This man with, uh, was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, he denied it. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I know that I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Hmm. See, these bystanders are surely the ones that you, you look at. And you can read, in this, especially in this, in the crucifixion of, of our Lord and Savior. You look at it and go, hmm, there were some that were listening to, to what he was saying. They were seeing what was going on. In this case, you know, maybe it was to get a little bit of... Get another, get some more flesh in the in the game, right? To to get some other more people in trouble, and obviously Peter saved his hide that way. But you look at it and you go, hmm, that bystander was there to go with the masses. You look at it and you go, hmm, that's kind of an interesting. This bystander, the servant girls, and these people, they were in favor of those that were crucifying Jesus Christ. You see, as a bystander, what you get to do is you get to pick a side. That is advantageous to you, you see. When you're not fully committed, when you're just a bystander and an onlooker, you see, you can go whichever the way the wind blows. There's also bystanders and onlookers that are just curious. Say, hey, what's you know what's going on? I want to hear this. I've heard it 
especially in the Bible times that we read about in the gospel times, you see, you know, we didn't have social media and phones and TV and all the other things that go along with that. So word of mouth and everything else goes along. So not necessarily being a bystander, is it a bad thing or an onlooker? However, unless you've been stricken and, and you find yourself in the position to where, you know, you can't be a bystander and an onlooker forever. You could always tell people like that. I, I got a, I got a saying. Listen, if someone says, "Hey, what's your favorite football team?" I got two. What? That means you pick the winner. That's how that works. It's indecisiveness. It's a bystander. You go. What do you mean? That's just football. I don't even watch football. Okay. My point is. Is that you look at that and when someone says, I'm, I'm a fan of this team and that team, you're like, mm, that's not how that works. Only one team gets to hoist the trophy. I've also been around a lot of people that when you're in, when they're in your presence as a supervisor and a manager, they're in your corner. And then guess what happens when you're not there? Yeah. They tell a different story. Why? Because they're really not in your corner. They're just a bystander. They're looking for the advantageous avenue for themselves. Then there's some that just come because they're curious. They don't know, right? In Acts chapter 3. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it starts in verse 11. He had literally just healed somebody um, earlier in the chapter and says, While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to him to the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at this as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But the but put to death the prince of life, the one who God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And he goes on to, to speak all these things. He actually goes through chapter 5, almost the whole chapter of chapter 5. And you look at this, and, and they, they had come out to see what had been done. The amazing miracles they chased him into the portico of Solomon. That's not a bad thing. Sometimes being the bystander, it's when we're the bystander when we've been at this for a minute. When we've been doing this for a little while. I remember one time I went into a meeting. It was a really, really interesting uh, scenario. I can tell you guys a lot of different, different scenarios that, that I've <laughs> that I've been in in my life and my professional career and places that I've done and 
give you the nickels worth of this is I was brought in to a group, supervising a group of, of people. But there was already a guy at the same level as me. Same exact pay grade, level, title, all this other kind of stuff. So, And him and I were actually friends. And I went to the boss and said, hey, you, you already have a superintendent over here. What do you need? What do you need me for? Well, the backstory is he was not given a choice. He had to take me from the vice president. So it's just kind of the way it worked, right? Which is never a fun situation to find yourselves in, by the way, for the record. Um, and so, you know, we went about three or four weeks. He would call us both into meetings. We would both have discussions, right? And the customer would come to me, then the customer would go to the other superintendent. And finally, the customer got tired of it, you see, because the customer wanted one person to talk to, to get whatever it is that needed to be done. It made no sense to have the same person of the same pay grade doing the same thing, having two people do the same thing. That's just silliness, right? And the customer was very patient, actually, um, until finally, one day, we were called into a meeting. It was my boss, uh, me and the other guy, and the customer rep. And the customer rep put basically put our boss in the corner and says, uh-uh, I need one person that's going to be, you know, doing this. Because you, you, you can't have it both ways. You can't, I'm not going to pay for two of these guys anymore. It's not how this works. You have to pick it. You have to pick one of these guys. One of the most awkward meetings I've ever been in. And that supervisor, who was a very wishy-washy person, was forced and put into a corner and he was forced to pick the person. It was me, obviously, but obviously I wouldn't be selling this story because it would be different, right? But, but I felt really bad for the other guy was, that was in there because he did nothing wrong, you see. And he was actually a good supervisor. But because somebody was unwilling to make a decision, they were indecisive, it created a scenario and a situation that nobody wins in. You think even though I got the position, you think that felt good? That guy was my friend and very capable of doing what needed to be done. But because of the indecisiveness of that leader, my immediate supervisor, because what he was trying to do, you see, he was playing both sides. He was, he was doing this whole shuck and jive every time he got around the customer, right? He was doing all this wishy-washy stuff. The customer got tired of it and said, you need to make a choice. And I apologize to the guy. You know, he goes, hey, man, it's not your fault. We both knew going into it, it could have been either one of us, but it was, it was definitely one of those things that the real blame was the wishy-washy leader. He didn't want to make a decision until they had to be forced. When we are indecisive in our life, when we are indecisive and in, in when we're bystanders and onlookers, those are the kind of behaviors and things that we demonstrate. It's not good. There's no conviction there. When we are not committed to our God, when we're not committed to the gospel message, when we're not committed to the Lord, guess what? People don't want to follow that. You say, what do you mean? How could I not be committed? I'm here today. Yeah, but if you were drunk yesterday or if you were partying the last week before that, 
No one's going to want to come to church with you, not because you're not a great person and not because the church isn't great. It's because what you tell them is you're not committed to it. Or the fact is, is that when you talk about your brethren in the church, do you speak highly of them or do you burn them down? You think about that. Why? Why would that matter? Because you're going to ask people to come to church with you, but you burn them all down. It doesn't take a real smart person to go, yeah, right. I ain't going to church with you because at some point I'm going to end on the other side of that. I'm going to be a part of that. I don't want to be. A, I'm not going to church with you. Or when when something goes wrong in your life, you get angry at God and people see you being angry at God for for your misfortune. You blame God for it. Oh, wait a second. Why? Because when you're a bystander and an onlooker, you can do that. It's not profitable nor advisable. But when you're not committed, you can. The bystanders in Acts chapter 3 were amazed and awestruck at the things that, that Peter was saying. Much later, you can see that the bystanders, the very same ones, the, a lot of the bystanders ended up being added to the church at one point. So being a bystander to a new person is not necessarily a bad thing. But when you've been at this a while, that's not a good thing. When you're quasi-committed, you get quasi-results. That's how it works. And once again... The power and ability is within you to change that. We just got to draw closer to the Lord. Draw closer to his people. Draw closer to the, to the spirit. Now, number four. Finally, number four. Okay. The four friends, as we all know. Back in, 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 in Mark chapter 2, it talks about the four friends, how they, they dug a hole in the roof, right? And then they lowered that friend down. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing to see that, that, that you can see that those friends, they couldn't get in because of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those that were immediately in his circle surrounding him in closest proximity. And then the bystanders got in the way. They couldn't get in there. They needed, he needed to be healed. Now, you read over in, chapter, in Luke where we read over there, he says he was basically prime and ready to heal, wasn't he? But those that were causing the crowd, if you will, were hindering his ability to do that. And those four friends took him to the rooftop, dug a hole in the ceiling, and lowered him down into the presence of the Savior. Folks, be that friend. Be that friend. Don't be jealous of what somebody has that you don't have. Don't be envious of the things that you wish that you had or those kind of things. We let jealousy and selfish ambition and all those things. We'll get to some of those scriptures in just a minute. They get in the way. They get in the way of you being a friend. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4.
says in verse 9, it says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But now, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Ecclesiastes gives us the idea and the understanding that, brethren, we are stronger together than we are apart. The design of the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm just going to mention it. You design, the design of the body is that we are designed to be interconnected. We are designed to be interdependent upon one another. But we live in a very independent society. You understand? We live in a world of individualism. I mean, you got to be different. You got to be your own individual. But the scripture teaches us that we are interdependent upon one another. I, that I'm not trying to strip us of our, our, our individualism or anything like that. We just got to understand that we are designed this way. God's design, he has designed us for interaction. He has designed us to, to draw together. He has designed us, why? Because we're stronger together than we are apart. We must understand that that is a basic principle and an understanding of the scripture. There's plenty actually scripture that you could read to go along with that is that you understand that we are stronger together than we are apart. We say, well, I'm going to go at this alone. You're not designed to do that. You can try it, but it, it's much harder. It's much more difficult. In John chapter 15, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. The type of friendship that we're supposed to emulate and the type of friendship that we're supposed to have and demonstrate is a life-sacrificing friendship. Which is really hard for us to do sometimes. Because one of the things I've noticed, if my... You know, sometimes if someone says something ever so wrong, well, I just don't know if that guy's got it, if he's cut out for that, right? I don't know. Oh, we don't talk like that, do we? Oh, no. In the religious world, sure we do. Yeah, we do. When we harness and understand that if we're willing to lay down our life for one another, miracles begin to happen in our lives. 
amazing things begin to take place. Because that is a self-sacrificial love. And the scripture teaches us love covers a multitude of sins. Scripture also teaches us we can do a lot with our love and our care and our forgiveness for one another. But we must be willing to lay down our lives for one another. You know, just like our Savior did for us. It is a self-sacrificial love. When you can do that, when you can love God's people, when you can love your family, love your friends, listen, it, 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 love your, your, your children, your spouses, and all those things, you must, it must go to that, to that level. You know, husbands out there, your wives must feel a sacrificial love from you. They should not feel that the first time they mess up or the first time they do something wrong, you're thinking about getting rid of them. Some of you say, hey, it's too late for that. <laughs> Maybe it is, right? <laughs> and husbands, same thing. We must also understand that, that our love for our Savior and our love to one another is not a trans... I've said this before, okay? It is not a transactional love. You understand? As long as you say the right thing and do the right thing, I love you. But as soon as you say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing, yeah, I don't think it's going to work. That's transactional. We don't operate that way. So think about the four groups. I petitioned to you all this morning, be one of those four friends. Be willing to do something for somebody. Live a life of sacrifice for somebody. When you're a, para, when you're a paralytic, when we have to understand that we could be a paralytic. We could be an onlooker. We could be that bystander. We could be those, those examples that were given to us. And the truth of the matter is, the way to be successful, no matter those circumstances, is to ensure that your heart is close to God. You draw close to him, he'll take care of you. You draw close to him. Listen, if you're the paralyzed, if your heart is close to God, if you're looking, if you're trying to draw close to God, he'll send four friends your way. You may have to send them across the continent, right? But, you know, maybe they'll show up. If you're the bystander or the onlooker, go, I don't know about all this religious stuff. I don't know about all this, this Jesus stuff. You keep listening. And if you're really searching for him, He'll prick your heart without fail. And then sometimes we're, we're that onlooker or bystander. We're just looking for something, to, to, for some ground of accusation. Well, the solution to that is draw closer to him too. Repent. May the Lord bless you and keep you.